You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. There are certain times when a brand becomes sort of synonymous with a product. Like a brand is so popular, that name is used to identify the product. Kind of like, um, you know, Kleenex is synonymous with tissues or Oreo is the, the way we refer to those sandwich cookies. And in the art world, I think the equivalent of that is probably Pablo Picasso. Picasso is the name that people drop in place of any great artist. You might say, like, I'm no Picasso to mean I'm not a great artist. Pablo Picasso is arguably one of the greatest artists of the 20th century. Now, the reason I have waited this long into my run of the podcast to cover such a great and famous artist is because, in all honesty, as as great as he was artistically, he was not such a great guy. Learning more about his biography and the the way he treated women, the way he treated his family, it just, it always left me a little uncomfortable and made me, it changed the way I looked at his work. That being said, he is one of the greatest artists of the 20th century. His talent is undeniable. His influence is undeniable. But there are some parts and topics that are a little bit heavier that are not so pleasant to listen to and think about. So just be mindful of that if you choose to listen to the rest of the episode. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, the podcast where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today I have joining me my good friend, Abigail Zeeb. Thanks for coming in. Good to be here, Kyle. And today we are going to be, um, we're going to be focusing on the smallest giant of 20th century art. <laughs> I love that way you phrase that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the smallest giant of 20th century mm-hmm. art, Pablo Picasso. Small in stature and in his pettiness. But mm-hmm. for all his personal faults, he was artistically very strong. So to, we're going to start off with his background a little bit. He was born in Malaga, Spain, October 25th, 1881. And when he was born, I guess the midwife actually thought he was dead. They put him down on his table. And, like, I guess the the less than stellar um, family relations, like, 
must be genetic because apparently his uncle was smoking a cigar and blew smoke in his face. In the face of a baby. Not even a day old baby. Not even a day old baby. And apparently that caused Picasso to scream and cry. And so they were like, oh, he's still alive. This could explain where his awfulness came from. Like his it, first breath of air was cigar smoke. It does. No, it does paint care. a little bit of a picture for you. If you'll excuse the pun. Yeah. But he he was a child prodigy. Prodigy. Supposedly he could draw before he could speak. Whenever I hear that, though, I always wonder. Like he could draw before he could speak. Can't everybody draw before they can speak? It's really a matter of like how well they can draw before they can speak. Oh, 100%. And here's the thing. Child prodigy makes me think about Justin Bieber. Because wasn't he a child prodigy (laughs) of music? Like, he was playing the piano when doing all these things when he was a super young age. He peaked early. It was was just kind of all downhill from there. Like, you know, 15, he was great. By 50, he was a monster. So, I mean, like, was he a child prodigy for making these amazing drawings before he could speak? I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah, I I really don't. I mean, records from that time are spotty at best. You think about like how much were people caring about Picasso in like 1885, you know? Um, And who's going to praise him? His mom, his dad, like they're already have a weird lens to the situation. Yeah. Um, So, you know, he but he definitely was skilled as a visual artist. He um, he went to School of Fine Arts age 13. Uh, at 16, he attended the Madrid Royal Academy, um, but he dropped out because he didn't like the formal education. So, like, his first major work of art, like, was the first communion painting when he was, like, 15 years old. And I got to say, looking at this painting, it is ridiculous quality for a 15-year-old. Like, it it would hold up side by side with any of those those great you know, traditional like Renaissance masters in terms of like the realism, the, the subtle shifts in, in color, the, you know, compositionally, it's not really the most thrilling to me, but like in, in terms of the, <laughs> in terms of like just the, the technical prowess, like I, I can't really find fault. And to think he was 15 years old doing that, it, it's, yeah, it's very impressive. It's very impressive. Yeah. Um, so, like, it, as, as I've already alluded to, awesome artist, kind of an awful person. So he's said to be, like, one of the most prolific artists in history. Uh, he created over 147,000 works of art, including paintings, sculptures, prints, poems, like, all sorts of, all sorts of different stuff. And, like, while he was, like, one of the richest artists in art history... I guess he left no will, so the estate taxes were paid in the form of some of his paintings, which had to be kind of a weird thing. Like, can you imagine being the government official and having to go in and be like, uh, this collection of paintings represents, you know, 20% of the net worth of this whole thing? Like, like that's just got to be a really weird thing to be the tax collector slash art appraiser. I was going to say, like, do you have a history, a background in art appraising that you're coming in with? Yep, I know that that painting's worth this much, and that one's worth this much, so clearly these are mine right now. You can have the rest a little bit. What an odd guy. I'm sorry. I know, such an (laughs) odd guy. 
But like, but he is he is the name that people drop when they think about like an artist. Like he is the the he is like the the brand of like a great artist. You know, when people say like, "Oh, I'm not a great artist," they say, "I'm no Picasso." You know, um, but like, yeah. yeah, his his works, his and and for that reason, his work is also like the most commonly stolen. I guess like about <laughs> eleven hundred have been lost or stolen, uh, at least as of this recording. Um, and as I as I as I said in one of my minisodes, um, like a, two weeks ago, maybe uh, Picasso also was an art thief to some extent, or at least was in possession of stolen art around the time he was accused of stealing the Mona Lisa. He didn't steal the Mona Lisa. That was somebody else, but he was suspected for a while. Oh, come on. He would have been fantastic if he stole the Mona Lisa. The Picasso steals the Mona Lisa. You kidding me right now? I know. It would have been it would have been a great story, but he was in possession of stolen Iberian I mean, sculptures. Which What does that say about you as an artist if you're good. stealing other art? Right? Yeah, I mean... Do you just not want to show it or just like just to have it because you didn't make it or just not to show it for people not to see? Well, and and, like, what's, and arguably like throughout his career, you know, he was stealing people's art, you know, in, in a more sort of figurative sense with like his what is generously dubbed his African influenced period where he was really just shamelessly ripping off African masks and putting them on canvas. <laughs> Um, but he went through different phases. So early on when he was like 15, as we, as we said, he was painting in, in almost like photorealistic detail, like just superb, high quality, refined work that was much more traditional. And then after that, he, he, you know, went through like his blue and his rose periods, which were more focused on emotion, the blue period, uh, obviously the emotion being more sadness because, of all things he was, he was not subtle. Did he have mental um, things like, uh, what's that one guy, Van Gogh? Like, is it, has it been proven that he was also a guy who had some form of sickness? Or was he just who he was? I mean, Vincent Van Gogh was was uh, obviously institutionalized and said to be suffering from mental illness. I've heard a lot of people sort of looking back saying it seemed like he was probably suffering from bipolar disorder. But Vincent van Gogh, right. from all accounts, was also a super nice guy. And Pablo Picasso, um, from was what not. I understand, was not um, ever diagnosed with a, a mental illness. I do also think to be responsible, we should point out that the mentally ill, you know, are often stigmatized in society, but statistically, they are more likely to be the victims than the perpetrators of a crime. Like, I I don't think Picasso was mentally ill. I think he was just a jerk. Like, I think I think he probably had this giant ego. There are quotes saying, like, you know, if I were a. If I were uh, a soldier, I would have become a general. I chose to be an artist and I became Picasso. It's like he just he was a, he was full of himself. I'm just thinking about like the the phases he went through, like the blue phase or the red, like, you know what I mean? Well, he went. I don't know. Well, with the, the blue period, he went through a period of depression. And I think it was largely because of the loss of a close friend was the catalyzing um, incident for that. Uh, and then, you know, he sort of moved on and he was, he was focused on trying to take in different stuff. Like 
you know, for all the criticism of him appropriating different styles, he was also he was also curious about other works of art and other artists and other approaches. And so I think in some ways that that is an admirable quality that he was a, he was able to look at and change his style and and take influences from other other places. Um, I think the problem was he wasn't always so great with the attribution on that. You know, he wasn't right. always crediting some of the lesser known people like Diego Rivera, I guess, really did not like Picasso um, because he felt like Picasso plagiarized him at some point. But he probably uh, did. Yeah, <laughs> he probably he probably did. <laughs> Let's be real. This he is, probably did. This is going to be the slander Picasso episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let him come after me. You know, we're just going to assume all bad statements made against Picasso <laughs> actually did happen based on the character that he was. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. But but like I said, he he did have some some good qualities. He went through those different phases. He he was a pioneer of abstraction, the the cubist approach. Um, he was one of the co-inventors, along with Brock, of, of like that cubist style. And the idea I, I found really interesting, the idea of trying to represent something three-dimensional on a two-dimensional surface by looking at it from different angles and showing all different angles simultaneously. That's one of those things. A lot of people look at at Picasso's work and they think like, what is going on here? I can't make sense of this because the nose is going off in profile. The eyes are facing forward. And part of that is the cubist approach. He was examining things from all different angles and trying to show a more complete picture by showing multiple views in the same composition, which, you know, sometimes I feel like it worked and sometimes I feel like it didn't, you know, like his earlier cubist work was, was fantastic. I felt like, but you know, late Picasso felt like a bad ripoff of Picasso. If that makes sense. You know, it seemed like towards the end, it, it was more about just like, you know, he had that reputation of being fantastic. Um, I think that was part of Rivera's criticism, um, was like R- Diego Rivera said something to the effect that like, you know, I'm so tired of Pablo. If he, if he copies something from me, everybody's going to think he was brilliant and I copied him, you know? Yeah. Oh, that would stink. Stinkerinkaroonies. And it just makes me think, I just read a, I was reading a story of my class recently about the guy, the King Minosis or whoever who touches everything and turns to gold. Yeah. And like, and he gets to the point where he's like, no, I can't turn to gold anymore. Like, I can't live like this. But this reminds of Picasso. Like, everything he touches, it turns out to be amazing artwork, even if it might not be. People, he just carries that around as in he's Picasso. This is it. Like, he can sell his estate taxes in paintings because he's Picasso. They're not going to even be like, oh, there's my little painting. Here it is. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it, like. I think what I like about Picasso, aside from some of his artwork, is 
his biography just sort of shows some of the absurdity of the art world, you know, um, because of the fact that that name carries so much weight that if he if he signed his name to something, it became valuable. Like the association with Picasso was was worth something. Um, and like there, you know, the, the old stories that like he would go places and not even bring his wallet. He would just give them a sketch, which like, is kind of presumptuous. I don't even know if that's actually yeah. true. It's one of those things that like, it's such a great story. Just like a lot of quotes are attributed to Picasso mm-hmm. that he may or may not have said. Um, like, you know, a famous quote of his is good artists copy, great artists steal. But as I said in another episode, he may not have even said that. Um, he might have did it. <laughs> um, like he certainly lived by that sentiment, but yeah, he did. Um, you know, he he talked about lots of different things. One idea I really do like: he was a hard worker. Um, like I said, he did take inspiration from all sor- sorts of different artists. He did learn from other artists. He was curious. He was exploring a variety of topics, a variety of ideas, and he talked about how inspiration exists, but you have to find it working. And, you know, he did live that. He, he did make, you know, just shy of 150,000 works of art, which is a lot more than I've made, a lot more than a lot of other artists have made. They may not all have been, you know, the greatest works of art in the history of the world, but he practiced. He made a lot, yeah. you know. Um, and so what I, I think... You know, we've covered a little bit of his background fairly well. Um, I I think it is worth mentioning that he was painting in the beginning to mid-20th century. While he was born in Spain, he moved to France for for a good portion of of his time because that's kind of where the avant-garde scene was. Like, that's where all the artists were mingling. And he was socializing with, with numerous artists in that Paris art scene. But he was also as much as we talk about him being celebrated, he wasn't always celebrated. Like um, when the Nazis came to power, a lot of people don't know Hitler was a failed artist. Did you know this? I did not know it. No. Yeah. He was a failed artist and absolutely hated modernism and modern artists like Pablo Picasso. Um, So Picasso's work was actually exhibited with a number of other artists in um, in the Nazi degenerate art show, which was put on as a bit of propaganda, um, you know, showing basically everything that's wrong with, you know, everyone that wasn't their ideal. Um, that would be a little upsetting to see your art in that, gotta be honest. A little bit upsetting, but like, if, if you look at who was in that show, like he was in good company, you know, there were, (laughs) there, it, it was, but like, as a show of disrespect, he, you know, we talked about um, talking about mental illness before, and he, like, his work was shown alongside with works from from people who were uh, mentally ill, and you know, like the the signs would say like, "This is a modern masterpiece by Picasso. This was done by an inmate at at um, at a hospital." Can can you tell who made which? You know, um, which it like it, it you know it was effective propaganda, I guess, but it was <laughs> it was I think demeaning it meant it was demeaning to everybody involved. 
But like I said, his work was up there along with many other uh, other people's. And part of the reason that I bring this up is because there's an old story. We're going to focus on Guernica today for this work, uh, for a sort of deeper dive into a piece. And there's an old story about like a um, Picasso being in his studio and confronted by, by a Nazi soldier who looked at Guernica and said, you know, you, did you do this? And Picasso responded, no, you did. Um, because Guernica is this massive painting. Um, it's like 11 feet tall, 25 feet wide or 25 and a half feet wide. And it's one of his, it's one of his best. It's mural sized painting. And it depicts the people and animals suffering in like this violence and chaos that was created in the small town of Guernica. Like it's, it's a small town in Northern Spain. And basically what happened was there was a bombing in that town and he is showing just the horrors of war. Um, So the painting was displayed in like 1937 in the Paris International Art Exhibition and then other venues around the world in order to raise money for Spain for war relief. So, you know, when I, when I think about his, his legacy, like this is, I would say one of arguably one of his greatest paintings, um, one of the most hard to look at, but also one of his greatest. I was going to say it's and rough to look at. And, but, but it is also an example, like, he did this as an act of charity, you know, Yeah. he did this to, to raise awareness I, for, for, um, for obviously like the awareness for his, he was staunchly anti-war, you know, there, um, for, for anything you could say about him, he was, he was against war and violence in in his personal beliefs, but also in his actions, and so he he did what he could to use his talents to support anti-war movements and to provide relief to people in need. So, as we look at this painting, what's jumping out to you? My goodness, can I just say, like, it is all there's just so much emotion having this painting. I, I would say it was rough to look at just because, like. He must have felt like you could just see his raw emotion on the page. He must have just been like angry with everything that was going on. The the guy, I think his head is decapitated by his own arm in like the lower, what is it, left hand side of the corner, the Cyclops man. You see him? Yeah. Yeah. And then like his body transforms into like this gray smoke matter that encompasses then like the middle of the scene, the the horse, is it? with like the arms jutting out and the faces as like ghosts swooping in. It is one traumatic painting. It is just, oof. I think I need to start separating the man from the art. I've decided as I've listened to your talk, I might think he is an awful man, but I think his art has to speak for itself. Well, that and you know I, what I mean, that and I always think of, you know, we have to think of the the context a little bit like, yeah. You know, he he clearly suffered some trauma on the day he was born and yeah. who knows what else happened throughout his life. Um living through two world wars couldn't have been a pleasant experience. 
and that informed his work. And I think in this case, it informed it for the better. Um, as I'm looking at this, I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing the bull, I'm seeing the horse, I'm seeing like symbols of Spain and Franco and thinking about the, the revolution that was happening at that time. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, what I'm noticing is just the expressions of just unfathomable, not only like just sadness, but that, that pain, like that, Mm -hmm. that anguish that like you can feel it, um, like it, it becomes physical, not just emotional, um, like it physically hurts. And I I see that on all of them because this is, you know, depicting the aftermath of a bombing. And when you think about what the experience was for people and that horror of that, that looming violence that could come from the sky essentially without warning and just everything is gone. Um, that is just a terrible thing to think about, which, you know, he obviously was thinking about that and thinking about what that experience is for all of those people, for the, for not only the people who passed, but the people who survive it and have to pick up the pieces and for the people who lose loved ones for, for the animals that, that experience it too. Like it's not just people, but animals for the, the farmers who are losing, losing their livestock for the people who are left without their homes or their businesses for, for people who lose, you know, brothers, sisters, children, all of that. Um, like even if you survive it, you're, you're not coming out. Okay. Right. And here's what I love about it. Cause I'm really, this is the first time I've seen it since this morning is from his background, he was 15. He drew that real life, almost like real life. It could pop out of the page picture, right? Yeah. He painted it. And then we have this and what he could have like kept with that real life and drawn the devastation, like straight from what he saw. But I think this has a more profounding effect because people, I mean, you, we see photographs all the time of like devastations that happen places, but this is multidimensional. Anyone, even if you've never experienced before, I'm, I'm latching on to something that I can relate to in this painting, um, whether it be, you know, the animals, the, the the bull, the door being shut and like flames or something kind of out of it. The person screaming, no, well, I, I would assume that's what they're saying. Yeah. I had like, no, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's just so much more this is than if I just saw like a, a painting depicting the real life after effects. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I get at, like, you know, this is a bit of that cubist style where, you know, you're showing more by being less realistic, you know? Yeah. Um, by, by looking at it in, from different angles, different dimensions, you're creating a more, a more real picture, even if it's less visually realistic. And, mm-hmm. and I think, the fact that this is black and white and gray, that that desaturated, like the starkness of that, I think works really, really well. Um, the fragmentation of it, the way that it's all these shapes that, that cut across and and it becomes a little bit more ambiguous, which leaves you to puzzle over it and make connections. And when you are forced to puzzle over something as you and I both know well, and as I've talked about numerous times on the podcast, when, when you're forced to think about something and try to figure it out, it leads to 
deeper learning and it, it impacts you on a deeper level and it stays with you longer. And this one resonates because the more I look, the more I discover. And that keeps me looking for more to figure out like, what else am I going to see in there? And if there is one piece that we need to, to take time to seriously look at and consider, it seems to me something that is so much anti-war, anti-violence, you know, that at least for me, like I'm, yeah. I'm very firmly a pacifist. So, um, oh, that's 100%, that resonates, yes. Yes. resonates well with me when I thought about his body of work. No, I agree completely. Um, anything else you want? It's so, capti- yeah. it's so captivating to look at. It just is. Um, and what you'd mention, like the best stories are the ones with the least amount of words and you're left to fill in the blanks. And this one has a lot of blank. He leaves you with them in a moment, but he leaves a lot up for you to guess what happened before what's happening now, what happens after. And that's what's so great about it. Yeah. And, and it does feel like this sort of snapshot of what's happening because it's like there are multiple narratives in there you know right there's the multiple perspectives it's it it's like a Rashomon film you know in in the form of a painting you know where we can see all these different people's experiences and the animals it's like everybody's experiences because like I say it's not just humans it's you know the war doesn't just affect the soldiers it affects that. Right, like the animals are like even the place, the buildings, the landscape. Yeah. I mean, you can even tell in his picture the painting, the landscape is not the same. You have white, you have dark, you have gray, you have like bricking in the back, you have closed corners. It changes, especially if in his painting, like the bombing, it changes the entire landscape. Yeah, and we see we see the disarray carried through across everything. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this one? No. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. No. You want anything else? And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Lou? Is this something to look at? The lab, the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Lou? British for bathroom. The yeah. There's a the poop Lou. joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Wait, was the second choice a lab? The lab. Yeah, I'm gonna say the lab. Something to learn from. I'm just thinking of like, I mean, when you say lab, I automatically think of like test chemicals and stuff. I'm just thinking, mm-mm-mm, you better put this in a lab. People need to spot it. If you put a chemical with another chemical, guess what might happen? Uh, be warned. Yeah, I, li- I like that. I, I would agree. This one to me feels like it's something for the lab because it's something that we can learn from. But it's also something you need to prepare to see. <laughs> like before you go in there, you got you got to put on your goggles. You got to protect yourself because this, this one. This, Think about this what you're doing. Dark. It's not only going to affect you; it's affecting everything. Yeah, it's it's yeah. true. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate it. Oh, I love coming, Woods. Great, great time had by all. I love talking about art. Well, thank you. Even if it is Picasso, yeah. Even if it is Picasso. <laughs> Even if it is him. Ugh. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and the website WhoArtedPodcast.com. Podcast done.